Welcome to Pod to the Rescue. Rescuing the dog is just the first step. We're here to help with everything that comes next. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Pod to the Rescue. I'm Libby. And I'm Emily. And we are here today to talk about some case studies we have in rescue right now, and also to have a little conversation about what happens if the dog that was presented to you is not the dog you get. And we're, we're talking specifically in the fostering stage. So, so often we get dogs who are owner surrenders or who are coming off of transport from other shelters and their behavior in one context was described as you know, a dog who is great with all dogs, very easygoing, happy-go-lucky. And then we get them into another context and we find out that in the new context, that's not their behavior at all. And we were prepared for what we knew. And so what happens then? It's such a great topic. And I feel like right now we really are in the thick of that. You know, you would think that we would have had some way to iron this all out and it would just be smooth sailing, but you know, these are individual beings with feelings and learning history and genetics that come into play. And, you know, so much of it changes. And we're definitely not saying that anyone lied or the shelters didn't represent the dogs properly. It's that a shelter environment is extremely different than a home environment, like so many of these dogs come from very different environments than we live in. So a rural dog coming to a city, a dog who's never lived with cats before has to live with cats, a dog who had free roam all of a sudden has to be in a crate while we go to work. There's so many like moving parts that we continually in our rescue have to contend with and make like fast changing, like, oh my God, you know, there's a being and they're suffering and we made, you know, we put them in a foster that wasn't suitable for their needs. Right. So how do we stay flexible and get this dog into a place that is better for meeting their needs, their individual needs? Em, do you want to start out by giving a little overview of the two dogs we have in rescue right now? Sure. Um, so Benny is like a most, the most beautiful, like wolfhound terrier mix. We're going to do a DNA test just to find out what he is. And he was in a rural kind of rural, small town, Arkansas shelter. He was picked up ironically on the 4th of July for like running fearfully during the fireworks and his owners didn't want him back. And apparently, according to the lovely shelter folks who we love there, um, he was a quote yard dog. So, you know, we had a feeling that his life experience wasn't great. And we had an amazing foster man here who was ready to take him, who lived in an apartment. And, you know, it's tough because we don't want to ever say like, you have to be this certain kind of person to foster because We've had amazing fosters who had, you know, lived in an apartment and had no yard. And then we've had, you know, fosters who just weren't suited for it, who had 40 acres. So it's really like the person's 
heart and skill set in addition to their environment. So don't you think? Yeah. And I would add commitment to that Mm, commitment. Right. Right. And what's your tolerance? Um, and, and it's okay to say, I want to foster, but these are my strong lines, you know, because then the rescue could probably be like, I get it. You have children. We're going to be more careful because obviously we don't want your children getting bit something like that, you know, or totally like my, my hard line is the cats, you know, you I'll do management, but you can't be a cat killer and come to my house. You just can't I have four. So, um, okay. So, so Benny went to the apartment and he was described as very calm and very sweet at the shelter. And I think he was, cause we do see calm and sweet out of him, but he's also extremely fearful, has intense noise sensitivities. And he also has intense light sensitivities, which I've never seen. Um, like last night I turned on the flashlight cause I was going to go outside and, uh, he panicked. It was like, I started a lightsaber in the house and he panicked and hid in the kitchen. And then, you know, that draws like out of your trust account with that dog. So mm. it just, it breaks my heart. Like, I, I actually feel like I need a therapist because so many times with poor Benny, mm. I do things that hurt him and I don't mean to, but back to this awesome foster guy who would have been perfect for, you know, so many dogs, but an apartment in a really loud area, we were like, Ooh, you know, like we got to move Benny. Yeah. And we could tell that he wasn't, uh, really thriving in that environment because he was behaving really fearfully on walks. We were a little afraid that he was going to, bolt, you know, whenever loud trucks would pass by on the road, he would kind of, he would spook and startle. Um, so for his safety, we realized, okay, this, this dog needs to be in a different environment. Yeah. And at that home, because there were also so many noises just going past the apartment complex, like loud motorcycles, Benny was hiding under the bed most of the time. And that was a big sign. Like this dog is struggling. Mm -hmm. This is not the right environment. And so that is something that kind of, once you have the dog in front of you, you need to be like, what environment do you need to thrive? Right. So in Benny's case, we were, we were lucky that you had space for him. So we were able to move him to your house to foster and you have a big backyard, you're in a quieter neighborhood. And also you have Piper who is a pretty solid dog and could almost act as like a, um, kind of a buddy to show him the ropes. Would you, would you say that's kind of how it's going? Yeah. She's definitely like an emotional support dog or a mentor dog. I think people have called it where she is very helpful for him. He, he goes out and follows her lead and follows her around the house. And we've just started to walk Benny in the neighborhood. I have, you know, a friend who can come over and I think we've done two walks. One, not so great. It was really bad timing. The school had just let out. We were like, Oh, rut row. We should have turned back. Um, the second one went really well. It was like a quiet Sunday and he actually did really well, but mm-hmm. Yeah. So Benny's just special. Uh, my vet came last week. So, you know, we're not, 
like drug pushers by any means, but if you have a dog who is really struggling with like the basic things in life, like television, like Benny is terrified of the TV, like regardless of if the sound is on or not, if I turn that TV on, Mm -hmm. he will leave and he will not come back to my bedroom for the remainder of the evening. Um, and I've like tried turning it towards the corner. I've tried just having it on during the day with just the little scroll that says dish network, dish network, dish network, anything. Mm -hmm. He just has like real fear of that, of the TV. I, Mm -hmm. uh, so anyway, so my, yeah, isn't that bizarre? I, I wonder if he has some vision issues. I, one reason I want to do the DNA test is I actually think maybe he has like extremely acute vision because he's a sight hound. That would be what I would be curious because Uh his vision seems so exceptional that I'm like, Oh, I wish you didn't see so well, buddy. You know? So, okay. So it's not, it's an maybe a hypersensitive, hyper, hypersensitive, hypersensitivity. Yes. That (laughs) that would be my thought. So my vet came down and she prescribed some behavior meds for him. But I think what we're thinking is that he's so different than what we normally see. And I've fostered like 150 dogs that I think we're going to try to get an appointment with the veterinary behaviorist to just see, is there a behavior med that would be really helpful for him to just kind of, you know, it's not a magic pill. All of the stuff we're talking about, like we just talked to Sarah Walsh about enrichment. It's like just one piece of the, like, how do we help these dogs? And with the dog that's really struggling, I think that, um, a veterinary behaviorist might be really a good plan. So that was, Mm -hmm. that's probably in his future. That's Benny's story. Um, well, that's the first, first chapter of his story, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) We'll continue updates with him. So yeah, in this case, we were lucky to be able to have a backup foster. Um, what, gosh, what would we have done if we didn't have a backup foster? Oh, well, for some strange reason, one reason I took him was because I saw that he was good with cats in the shelter. And I have to say, I probably like aged a year worrying that that was just contextual and he really wasn't good with cats, but he is good with cats. Mm. And I was interested in taking him into the rescue because I thought I could be a backup foster for him. Now we have a dog coming in on Wednesday night. And I have to say, I have like already my PTSD is kicking in and I'm feeling like, like that trauma worry of like, what if he doesn't fit in that foster home? Because right now, because of the pandemic, it's made everything a million times harder. Boarding is always the last option for us. But right now it's not even an option because everybody is full because of the pandemic, everyone got dogs and now everyone's traveling. So, you know, it just, it's becoming really nerve wracking for me. Yeah. It's hard. I think for all rescues right now, I've heard it over and over and over again, that rescues are really struggling to find fosters Mm -hmm. and, you know, we all have the reasons why we think that is mostly pandemic related, but it's tough right now. It's tough right now. And fostering is often hard. It's not always hard. They're the unicorn dogs. Mm -hmm. So let's talk about Boomer Finn. Boomer Finn. So listeners, we talked about Boomer slash Finn. I I just call him Boomer Finn because I think it's a funny name. (laughs) 
Um, we talked about him a little bit in the first season, but he was a healer Aussie mix who came to us from a shelter in Eagle County, Colorado, where he had been for at least two months. And he also ended up being pretty anxious. And in the amazing foster home that we found for him, he was showing signs of separation anxiety. And we, this wasn't something that we necessarily knew about from the shelter. Um, and I don't know that that's even something you can screen for in a shelter. Uh, but the foster home we found for him was not necessarily set up to deal with severe separation anxiety. So one thing we did for Boomer was to just get a cadre of volunteers from the rescue to go over and sit with him while his foster people were out running errands or at appointments or at work or something like that. So we had all of these rescue rescue volunteers who couldn't foster, but we had the time to be able to go spend an hour a week hanging out with the dog, playing in the backyard, working on some training skills. Um, honestly, you know, sitting and <laughs> just sitting with him while he chewed a topple. Um, and so that was a solution that we came up with. One thing about Boomer was he had kind of anxiety and fear with new people. And I think because we had that um, group of visitors who would go and sit with him. He made some of the best progress I've ever seen in a rescue dog in the three months we had him. And I think it was because he had these really good, loving people coming in, sitting, not putting any pressure on him, bringing him food and, and then leaving when his people came home. And then at the end of it, we started having the people leave like 15 minutes before his fosters came home. So he had a little, little snippets of being alone and we would watch him and he, he got pretty good. He got pretty good at it. Yeah. And we worked up to that. You know, we would, whenever I stayed with him, um, I would, you know, walk out the door, pause for 10 seconds and then walk back in. Right. You know, and I would, I would repeat that several times throughout my stay. And so we all kind of did this little process of working with him. Mm -hmm. That is a good point. He was one of the best dogs and he's doing great. He got adopted by the most wonderful woman who lives by the ocean in California. And she came out and spent a couple of weeks getting to know him. She knew his little idiosyncrasies and she took him back and they're living their best life. So yeah, it's hard. It's, I think it's really hard sometimes when we are in these difficult situations in rescue to remember that there is a light at the end of the tunnel, you know, for most dogs, we, we do find their happy forever home. You know, we do find that perfect situation, but it can be really hard in that moment when you're looking at a dog who you're totally not prepared to deal with. Yeah. And it really is no one's fault. Like if it's not the right fit, we really impressed that upon Benny's original foster dad. It was like, you didn't do anything wrong. It's just not the right environment for him. And we didn't know that. 
and nobody knew that the shelter in Arkansas, there was no way that they would have known that like loud motorcycles rumbling past would be horrifying for that dog. Yep. They had no way of knowing that. And so it's just something that we had to learn with experience. Yeah. Um, one thing there's a rescue in Weld County that I would love to have on one day. They're called I'll be home. I think is the name of the, the rescue. They have a, remember we talked to her and she said they have two foster homes for every dog. Oh, until they're home. Until they're home. I thought that was such a great strategy. I mean, right now we can't really find one foster home for one <laughs> dog, but they're, they're a little more organized than us. Or Yeah. I think that's a great one. Cause then every dog has that like safety net. That's what we really need is a safety net. Mm-hmm. I, I think one of my stresses right now about this lack of boarding is that there's no safety net for these dogs anymore. So I think ultimately what we want fosters and rescues to understand is that dog training and dog behavior is really about the individual, right, Emily? Mm-hmm. It seems like everyone we talk to, it always comes back to, it depends on that individual dog. Like Susan Friedman says, behavior is the study of one. And I think that's true. Like broad generalizations about, you know, fosters need to have yards or this or that. It really just depends on that individual dog. Right. And that individual person, I guess, too, like their needs. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And so what it comes down to, I think, when you have a dog who is not what you expected (laughs) coming into rescue. Um, I would say flexibility is the number one thing and building some flexibility into your rescue is going to be super important. Having some volunteers who, even if they can't long-term foster, even if they can come over for an afternoon, or if they can take that dog on a hike or on a long walk or something like that is going to be really key. And layering things in slowly, I think is key. Um, So do you have the ability to do slow baby steps, introducing the dog into a new lifestyle? Um, I think that's always a really handy attribute of a foster where you don't have to like force them into scenarios. Like you have a quiet room where they can decompress and you, you know, if, if it's a shy dog or a fearful dog, ideally a yard or just some area where they can go out and go potty without really being flooded by a lot of new stimuli is really ideal. I wouldn't say don't offer to foster if you don't have a yard. I don't think that should be a deal breaker, but it could be a bit more challenging. So yeah. And one thing I tend to do um, is when the dog comes in and I'm evaluating them, I'm immediately like, oh my God, like this behavior is blah, 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 blah. And I have to always remind myself that like this dog is going through trauma. This is just this moment. I remember a puppy that I got a few years ago. And when she came in, she was like a severe resource guarder for the first two days. And I was like, oh my God, this is really strange for a 10 week old puppy. But as she got her needs met of having food, that went away and it never came back again. She went to someone I know. And so, you know, try to just even yourself take deep breaths and be like, okay, 
This dog is spiraling right now. Let's just meet all her basic needs and then, you know, layer in some enrichment, a little sniffing here or there or something like that, but nothing major, just kind of let's meet basic needs. Let them settle before like jumping, if we can, to big conclusions. I mean, we tried Benny at that foster, I think for four or five days, but it wasn't getting better. It actually seemed to be getting worse. We were going every day and we we're like, oh, okay. Like at first we were like, all right, he just got here. And then it was like, now he hasn't come out from underneath the bed. And so this, sometimes this also happens with foster to adopt. And we don't do this very often, but it, it does happen when a dog will come straight off transport to an adopter's home. And in that case, as a rescue, we do a foster agreement with those adopters first because, because of this exact reason, because we, we think we know enough about the dog to say it might be a good fit for this home, but also <laughs> we, we won't really get to know the dog for another few weeks. So just having that understanding of it takes a little bit of time and in a different environment, the dog might behave a little bit differently. You know, it happened with my first foster. It turned out she needed a different type of home than I could provide. So we found her that we were able to find her amazing forever adopters. Um, and you know, Daisy was kind of similar in her first foster home. She was a turnkey dog at first. And then as she got more comfortable and settled in, then some different behaviors popped up and okay, we need a different environment for this dog. So yeah, behavior is fluid. That is one thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Like anytime you say this dog is blah, blah, blah. You just don't know how that's going to manifest in three months or a year. I mean, I've seen dogs that have come into the rescue, like boomer, super anxious, super fearful, and they blossom. I guess it goes back to the piece of resiliency, you know, how resilient is this dog and what natural tendencies pop up Like with Daisy. I think her issues were genetic, you know, a lot of it was genetic based of like the sudden environmental contrast. And so, you know, environments all of a sudden had she gone someplace without bikes, maybe that wouldn't have shown up, but man, right. Yeah. She does not like bikes <laughs> and you plop her down in Boulder County, Colorado. I yeah. Mean. <laughs> Those are just rogue cows with wheels, you know? Right. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Right. So it just goes back to what we're saying about behavior depends on the context, the environment, and, you know, it's very, I don't want to say never, but it's very rarely the foster's fault that something is going wrong. Mm -hmm. quote unquote wrong, mm -hmm. that something isn't going well. So Kim Brophy has this acronym that it's legs. It's the learning history, the environment, the genetics, and the self of the dog make up like what you're looking at when you look at a dog. So like the learning history would be like, was Daisy out, you know, herding cows in Texas? We have no idea. Um, was Benny, I think Benny was like in a yard and probably a lot of loud noises we're scaring him. He's really scared to go out at night, which was another problem in the apartment was he couldn't go to the bathroom at night here. He'll go out with me and Piper into the yard in the dark, but he's scared. 
Um, so yeah, the, the learning history of like, what was their life before we got them that just like us, like we are what we were exposed to and what we learned environment. Like what environment are you in now? Like I'm a much nicer person at the beach than I am like, you know, waiting online at Costco with 5,000 people, you know, with a mask on. So, and then <laughs> genetics, just, you know, what, what your dog was bred to do. Um, they were selectively bred, you know, a lot of them, the, especially the, you know, the herders, the livestock guardians for certain traits, and those can come out and they can sometimes not be ideal for our environments like Daisy mm-hmm. and Piper, not ideal mm-hmm. for our environments. And then just self is like, you know, who they are. I mean, we like that Bodhi dog who's had like the worst life ever and probably excruciating pain, worst teeth ever had gunshots and couldn't walk. And he's just the sweetest dog. There is no explanation as to why that dog is so sweet. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Despite all of his health challenges just turned out really, really sweet and resilient, unflappable and resilient. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's amazing. So that's kind of the legs model. So I hope this is helpful to any fosters or rescues who are out there and who are dealing with incoming dogs whose behavior is different from what you expected. Um, Just know that these changes in environment can have just a huge impact on the behaviors we see. And sometimes the best thing to do is to get them into the environment where they're going to be able to decompress and feel safe. All right, so now we would like to answer a listener question about our episode on door greetings. So Amy writes, hi, I totally loved the last episode on door greetings. Wondering if you have thoughts on how management differs when the company is unplanned. Also thoughts on when being behind the gate with something yummy. And then that yummy thing is finished. I have an Alabama special who loves people and can be distracted to the yummy treat. But when she is done, she gets pretty excited to join the fun. Her body language is definitely whole body waggle happy. I think let's start with the running out of the treat and what do you do then? Um, I would say when she is, you know, being calm, maybe just at the end of the treat, you could try to bring her out on a leash and like, so more management leash and a harness, maybe in advance of people coming over have worked on mat work. So you're giving her like another reasonable thing to do around company and you're practicing your mat work, which she's hopefully got some skills with. Um, Can you explain mat work for those who haven't heard of it? So Sarah Walsh has a great mat work video that you could go look up, but you know, it's really just, you have their little portable safe space. It's either a towel or yoga mat, or like, I like the West pod dog beds, but that's a little pricey. Um, and you would start, you know, just basically rewarding them when no one is around with no distractions for being on their mat. And, you know, you start with really low criteria, like feet on the mat or just being near the mat. And you drop your food to the mat. Um, I think there's a really great podcast that Hannah Brannigan did on this. She said like at night, like her wind down is, you know, she has, I don't know, her popcorn and her, you know, tea. 
and she just has her dog's kibble and mixed in with some snacks. And she just keeps putting food on the mat and the dog goes to the mat and eats it. And that is like how you train mat work. It's like kind of the most easy thing you can teach. It's like you be near the mat, relax on the mat. And eventually the dog will just be on the mat and be like, well, standing is kind of tiring. So I'm going to lay down, you know, so some mat work, higher value, I think treats when you have company, because now you've just upped your game from like, you know, just doing a little jog around the neighborhood to being in a triathlon because there's people there and you have the leash so that they can't make a mistake. You know, they can't like go and hopefully jump all over the people and just calming them down as you see they're calm, maybe giving them a chance, you know, if your guests to go up and say hello. And if they make a real big mistake of like leaping up, be like, okay, well, that's a social behavior, but that's not what we're looking for. Oops. And you just like put them back behind the gate would be my thought. Do you have any thoughts? Yeah, I would say it depends on, I guess it depends on who's coming to your house unannounced. Um, That's a good point. You know, if it's your good friend and you can tell your good friend, um, okay, if she jumps up on you, you need to ignore her and you can have involve your, this person in the training. Um, if it's not that kind of visitor, <laughs> then, um, yeah, but then I think your, your plan is going to differ a little bit, but I definitely agree that working on the behaviors you do want to see, you know, before prime time is, is going to be key here. And that relaxing on a mat is going to be huge. And hand targeting is a fun one to teach because that could be how they go to say hello to the person is, you know, if they're, if they're seeking, cause you want to say like, what's the function of the behavior? Well, they're going over there for social engagement. So it's like, how can we manage social engagement appropriately? So we're really teaching them just like they're a two or three-year-old, like, this is how we say hello to people. Um, even like Gigi has suggested, and I think it's a good one, you know, there's like a tad bit of, you know, restraint, but just like sliding your finger into the collar or the harness, you know, just to keep them from jumping up. So you're just, you know, depending on your dog, it always goes to, it depends, just preventing that behavior of jumping. If jumping up is the issue. And I also position feed, that's a Gene Donaldson hack. And it's like, feed your dog where you want them. So when I've had puppies or dogs that jump up, I will like literally just have a handful of food and be, and if they're like wiggly waggly and they want to meet, so they're eating the food while the person is saying hello. So, you know, it's like, put the food where you want the dog to be is another idea. Right. So that could be a treat scatter on the ground. Right. If you have a one dog household you know, you could do a treat scatter on the ground and then they can't jump up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So we, I, I think we kind of mixed both questions there, <laughs> but I think that's, you know, if, if your dog is being happy pro-social, but a little overexcited, even after they finish their nice chewy treat behind the baby gate, those are some management things or some training tools you can use when they come out behind the baby gate. Like M said, if they're not making the right decisions, they're not ready. They can go back behind the baby gate until they're calm. Um, so M, you have a lot more experience with unexpected guests. What do you do in those situations? So a couple of years ago, my son was 
living in my home because he was in high school and he would have herds of teenagers come over. (laughs) I don't think I did a great job of setting precedent and being like, you know, hello, Mrs. Blah, blah, blah. Can I come in and see your son? They kind of all just would just pile through the door in a very unruly manner. I think I didn't do enough antecedent arrangement there. And (laughs) I had untrained teenagers invasion all the time. So what I did was I would put, I have a nice big metal gate. I put like from the staircase to the closet. So they, so my fosters and my dogs couldn't access the door. And, um, I always had treats like at the ready, like a jar and, you know, I kind of had a sense of like when these herds would be coming and the herds always did want to go straight up the stairs to hang out in my teenage son's room and like play Xbox and God only knows what else I would check on them to be a responsible parent. But, um, I'm glad, I'm glad those days are over, but, um, mostly it was that management at the gate. And then, you know, I would run over and get the dogs to sit or redirect or hand target as the teenagers went up the stairs. It was funny because there would be girls and the girls always wanted to come down and do a little work and training with the dogs. So then we could engage in that. And the boys most of the time just didn't care at all. And just were like, Oh, Hey, what's up? (laughs) And they would, (laughs) so that was kind of my unexpected was, you know, have some management in place. I guess it's different if people are really coming to see you, I guess in that case, I would probably put a sign on the door, like give me, text me or ring the doorbell. I guess you could train your dog that the doorbell means run behind this baby gate Mm -hmm. because only great things are happening. Yeah. Yeah. No. And I love the idea of putting a little sign on the door that says, um, you know, please ring once I am taking care of the dog. I will, I'll be back in two minutes or I'll answer the door in two minutes. And, um, you could even have instructions on please ignore the dog behind the baby gate (laughs) or, um, something like that. So, and it's like, if you have a social greeter, I think our, our goal isn't for them to like live their lives, never gaining the skills to come out from behind the baby gate. Our goal is that we take that like heightened intensity around the door, have them some time pass, have them get that social information from our behavior and the visitors and they get the olfactory input and the visual input, and then they come out and we try to teach them some skills. So I definitely think, you know, learning those skills is key because, you know, we don't want to have to put our dogs away all the time, unless there's an, a behavior issue, then, you know, like a real aggression issue, then fine. You know, they don't need to mingle. Yeah. And, you know, again, with a, with a hyper-social greeter, you still don't want your dog jumping up on people and potentially pushing them, scratching them, you know, with their nails, things like that. So we still do want to teach them four on the floor, things like that. But if they're not ready, if they're not equipped to do that yet, then we need to help them out with a little management. You know, one thing I wanted to talk about with Sarah Walsh and I forgot to was just I think I was girl fanning a little bit, but one thing I think is amazing about her training videos is she demonstrates this rate of reinforcement, which was one thing that we learned so, so much at the Karen Pryor Academy, which she went to as well, which is like, you're just reinforcing, reinforcing all the good choices. Like just, you know, we tend to want to just, you know, reward a dog with like one milk bone for one set. And it's like, really just 
paying like quick, 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 teeny little bits of food for everything. And the mark and reward, you know, like, yes, good choice. Good choice here. I'm going to reward that good choice, that good choice. And then, you know, we're not simply positive. There are consequences. They just don't involve fear and force. And the consequence for making the wrong choice is just, oops, okay. Back behind the baby gate. Yeah, exactly. No, I love the rate of reinforcement topic. I mean, your dog is making good choices all day, every day. And the more you reward them, the more you reinforce them, the more they will choose those good choices. Cool. All right. Well, Amy, I hope we answered your question. Um, any other listeners send us a message on social media, one of our platforms or email us pod to the rescue at gmail.com. And maybe we will try to answer some listener questions regularly. Thanks for tuning in. If you liked this episode, don't forget to rate and review. It helps other folks like you find the show. To find out more about our programming and adoptable rescue dogs, you can visit summitdogrescue.org. Thanks to Mike Pesci for the original music and to Alex Lee Ammons and For the Love Media for graphics, production, and editing. See you soon on Pod to the Rescue.